This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. This is the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast with Andy Hill, session number 44. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Thank you for being here today, everybody. Today's show is supported by Bluehost. When I started my blog, Marriage, Kids, and Money, last year, I used this hosting service to get me off the ground. The tutorials and the support that Bluehost provided me was incredibly helpful. And I'm not the most tech savvy guy. So, uh, working with, a working with a partner that spoke my language was a big deal to me. If you're interested in starting your own blog, believe me, it's a whole lot of fun. <laughs> Check out Bluehost. If you sign up using the link marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Bluehost, you'll receive 50% off your monthly hosting price. Good deal. You'll be supporting the show as well with your subscription. So thanks in advance for doing it. Again, that's marriagekidsmoney.com slash Bluehost. All right, let's start today's show. The concept of universal basic income has received a lot of news coverage lately. Icons of industry like Richard Branson and Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk have all voiced their support for this social security for all type system. With the increases in automation and technology, billionaires like Musk say universal basic income will be a quote-unquote necessary thing given the mass unemployment in the near future. Around the world, locations like Finland, Namibia, I never knew how to pronounce that before, Namibia, and even Hawaii are experimenting with a form of basic income. Alaska actually has had a similar system for now over 30 years. Since I'm all about educating myself in all things financial, I figured I would take a deep dive into universal basic income. That way, I can actually form a thorough opinion on this highly debated topic. To get that education process started, I invited Scott Santons to join us on the podcast today. Scott is a writer and an advocate for basic income. He's the moderator for the highly active basic income community on Reddit. Suffice to say, he knows a thing or two about this subject. On the show today, Scott and I chat about what universal basic income is all about, and why he feels it would be a smart investment both socially and financially for the United States. And lastly, Scott shares some positive results from basic income experiments around the globe and actually here in the U.S. If you've heard of universal basic income but don't know much about the details like me, join me for today's conversation. Educating ourselves when it comes to taxes and government assistance programs will help us to be more informed Americans and better global citizens. As they say, knowledge is power. Without further delay, here's my conversation with universal basic income advocate, Scott Santons. Hello, everybody. We've got an excellent guest today. Scott Santons is here to talk to us about universal basic income. How's it going, Scott? 
Great, great, Andy. Thanks for having me. Excellent, excellent. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your involvement with uh, Universal Basic Income. Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I got into this idea uh, back in 2013, and uh, the origin was just through Reddit because I, I, you know, I'm a longtime redditor there. And a conversation hit the front page about like how we, in general, have no idea. Most people have no idea how quickly technology is advancing. And that got me thinking about things as well, because here I had thought that you know I was pretty up to date with technology, but apparently uh, I wasn't. And um, you know that was just kind of a fascinating discussion. And uh, you know, I started looking at this future that we're going towards, and it seems to be that we're headed towards the a dystopian future. And it's like, well, I would prefer not to go that direction. So what are our choices here? And that got me looking into this idea of basic income, which we'll talk about. Uh, but I became a moderator of the basic income subreddit, and I uh, just started doing a whole lot of research into the idea. And um, then I eventually even started uh, and completed crowdfunding my own basic income. So for the past year, since January 2016, I've been living with a basic income of $1,000 a month thanks mm. to uh, crowdfunding it on Patreon. So it's like I not only research it and write about it and talk about it, but I actually know what it's like to have it. Uh, I've learned some things even just from my own personal experience having it. So um, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And uh, you know, this is what I do full time. It's just about really spreading awareness and informing this conversation, I think is extremely important uh, for countries all over the world to, to have. Excellent. Well, it's it's not only yourself, uh, but a lot of uh, Silicon Valley icons like Elon Musk and Ray Kurzweil and Mark Zuckerberg have all been bringing up this idea of universal basic income. So could you just give us some 101 on what that is? What is universal basic income? Yeah, sure. So, uh, want to know like the actual kind of kind of definition of it? Then you know, I'd say it's a it's a form of social security where it's provided to all citizens uh, without conditions uh, that you keep in addition, you know, to work. You don't lose it with work, and it's you know, it's it's fully universal. It's not targeted in any way. It's uh, you know, like a citizen's salary, a citizen's income. It's a it's an unconditional income floor. That's provided to everybody so that you essentially it's essential to cover your basic needs so that you start above the poverty line. And if you do that, then there's so many other things you don't have to do that we're currently doing, like various welfare programs and even various uh, tax credits and subsidies and stuff in the tax code. There's a whole lot of simplification and there's a whole lot of savings that we can do um, through that. Like, you know, how much will we not spend anymore on crime? How much will we not spend anymore on healthcare thanks to a healthier population? You know, there's a lot of a lot of things that kind of come and emerge out of this um, provision of this basic uh, amount of money that's sufficient to cover basic needs. Okay, excellent. So, so this is a social security system or a, or a social security like system that would be provided to everybody. Let's just call it the U.S. No matter their financial situation. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. You could say that right now in the U.S. that there is a basic income for seniors, essentially. But although not every senior you know, gets uh, Social Security, and the way that we go about Social Security was n- would not be probably the way that we go about basic income. But you know, the way that they get it is that no, no senior is prevented from working. You, know, you can still work all mm-hmm. – 
all the way to the day that you die, you can continue earning income. It's just they all have this minimum income that's far above zero, which is what everybody gets right now is zero. Okay. Well, you're obviously very passionate about this topic. Why do you feel a system like this would make sense for our country, the U.S.? Yeah. So uh, when I first started looking into this idea, as I said, it was more of a a way to make uh, technology work for us. It's a way to create a, a better future uh, to you know a more utopian instead of dystopian path that we seem to be going down. But in my research, I discovered that based on the evidence that you know we we researched back in the 70s when we actually almost got it, which was surprising to me to learn uh, at the time as well. But based on all this uh, evidence that's already out there, I realized that that this is an idea that's uh, transformative right now and could you know do so much to improve the lives of, of so many people. And uh, you know there's just so many problems that we don't necessarily see as economic problems, but do have origins in that. You know, just as one example, just look at the uh, opioid crisis, the opioid epidemic that's going on. And so people might say, oh, well, that's because of, you know, people are getting hooked on drugs and da-da-da. And like, well, no, if you study like addiction and drugs and and um, you know, you see that there's the origins of this are actually it really has to do with you know your your self medicating away like um, you know this stress and uh, hopelessness and uh, you know the this you're just trying to escape from the situation that you're that you're in and that's you know a lot of this drug use comes from. So if people actually have this sense of security then that can really change uh, a whole lot of lives for the better. And as we've even seen through unconditional cash transfer experiments even, that it actually does uh, reduce uh, the usage of, of what they're called temptation goods, so alcohol, you know, tobacco, and drugs and stuff. Okay. All right. So it sounds similar to the welfare system that we have right now. Can you tell us how it would be different? And then you also mentioned earlier in our conversation that there might be some savings out of eliminating some of these programs we already have. Uh, I guess that's two questions. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with how it's different from the welfare system. Then maybe we can talk about the the positives and the savings after that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's very it's a very different idea than welfare. Welfare is a is a system of of targeted benefits. This this idea that there are people who deserve help and then there are people who don't deserve help. And it's the job of a bunch of bureaucrats and an administrative system to figure out who those who is what and then to provide benefits to the quote-unquote deserving. And so that's kind of welfare in a, in a nutshell. The problem with targeted benefits like welfare is that you pull them away, of course, when they're no longer – when they no longer meet the definitions of need. The result of that – is that it's kind of like pulling out the rug from someone after you've given them a rug. You know, it's say they the effect is actually a, a very high marginal tax rate. So you would basically, if you're receiving if you're receiving welfare benefits, and let's say it's let's say it's a thousand dollars a month, because when I talk about basic income, I talk about thousand dollars a month basic income, because that's uh, the poverty line. Mm-hmm. So let's just say that somebody on welfare is getting a thousand dollars in benefits. So they get the uh, they get the opportunity to take a part time job. That part time job will pay them, uh, let's say. 
enough money so that their total should be uh, $1,500. Let's say so it's $5 a month from this part-time job or whatever. But if they – what would happen with welfare is that you actually lose a lot of your benefits. The, so the effect is, is that you take this job and then you're earning, say, $1,100 maybe per month, in which case you're only $100 better off hmm. than you are by not doing the job. So the effect is that you're created a ceiling. You know, you're saying that – that you know, what is the point of working? The only reason that you would accept a job is if it actually leaves you a lot better off. In which case, the only jobs that make sense are, say, full-time jobs that pay like you know thirty or forty thousand dollars a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult to get that, and that's actually exactly why Finland is experimenting with this, is because they know or the hypothesis is that if you don't pull away that income, if you let people if you let the unemployed keep the income that you're giving them with work, then that will incentivize work. So that's really the big difference between welfare and basic income is that you always keep a basic income. So that way you're always better off by accepting any amount of earned income on top of it. Whereas with welfare, you can either be barely better off or there are actually circumstances where you can be actually worse off. It is possible with welfare. It's called you know, a welfare cliff is when, let's say, you're on multiple welfare benefits and, like, say, your boss gives you a, a raise. And so, hey, congratulations, you're earning an extra $1,000 per year. Oh, but guess what? You just lost $5,000 per year in benefits. Wow. So yeah. you are far worse off by doing that. Yeah, I've never really thought of it like that. I mean, it's almost it's almost disincentivizing people to advance yeah. then. It's absolutely disincentivizing. So I'd say welfare is like um, you know paying people to do nothing, and it functions as a ceiling. Unconditional basic income is like paying people to do anything, and it functions as a floor. You can go as high as you want to. You're not prevented. Hmm. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So we, we started to talk a little bit about how uh, welfare – uh, is in that type of situation, I can see where the savings conversation might come in because people might want to stay in welfare because they don't want it ad- advanced. So I guess talk a little bit about how a system like this might help us replace some of our um, our systems that we currently have in this country to support low-income folks. Yeah, so when, uh, when I talk even about welfare too, I'm not talking about uh, healthcare. I don't consider healthcare as welfare. I think healthcare should be also a universal thing that we do that everybody gets. Uh, so the fact that we do healthcare as welfare in this country, I think is already kind of messed up. Uh, but when it comes to what I'm talking about as welfare, which is a lot of benefits that, that are even given as cash or be best be given as cash, those are the things that really make a lot of sense to replace. So that's like a, a temporary assistance for needy families, which is a TANF is what it's called. And that's essentially what uh, welfare, uh, as we know it, uh, became after it was after Bill Clinton reformed it from what it once was. Um, that definitely should be replaced by cash. That is its own example of why we should replace um, welfare because, you know, on a national um, on a national basis, you're talking about about one out of every four people living under the poverty line actually get this uh, program assistance. And because it's a, given as a block grant to states, then there's actually a whole lot of variability from state to state to state such that you can actually have, you know, like in Wyoming currently, I believe it's 
out of 100 people living under the poverty line, three people get TANF assistance. Mm. And it's totally up to the states to decide what they want to do with it. And so many states actually end up using it to cut taxes for like the middle class or the wealthy or to provide, say, education, you know, college loans and whatnot to your more middle upper class. Um, this is money being given specifically for the poor that is not being given to the poor. And it's just a, the way they go about that program is just it's, – it's terrible. So that makes a whole lot of sense to get rid of. Got it. Got it. There's other programs like Section 8 assistance, uh, you know, housing vouchers. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense because housing vouchers, again, it's a very similar um, uh, ratio as far as only uh, one out of of four people who qualify for housing assistance uh, actually get it. So um, most people don't. And when you get a housing voucher, you don't get to use it anywhere. It's not just something you get to use as just like cash. It's uh, up to the people, you know, the landlords deciding to accept it or not, mm-hmm. in which case uh, ends up locking a lot of people into areas that they would prefer not to live in and actually does the opposite of what we want to do uh, by essentially creating like pockets of, of poverty as we want people to be able to use you know that money to live anywhere. So it doesn't make a lot of make it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, to do something like, you know, these vouchers like housing vouchers and food vouchers and just give cash instead. Um, so that's those are definitely programs that we should replace. And then also there's a lot of programs that are essentially welfare programs, but we don't call them that. Uh, and these are these various uh, programs within the tax code that are called tax expenditures. So this is uh, giving people uh, deductions and and subsidies and and whatnot based on meeting specific criteria. So like the the home mortgage interest rate deduction is a good example of this, where this is is helping the middle class afford to better afford to buy homes, uh, just like it would say like a housing voucher, but instead it's like an amount off of your mm-hmm. your you know yearly taxes. And so you know let's get rid of the vouchers, let's get rid of the tax credits and just give people cash and they can decide what they want to do with it. Excellent. Okay, well, I, I see where you're going with this and I, I know that you've been very busy on Reddit and I see you traveling around making presentations for UBI. It's a, something you're really passionate about. I'm sure on the opposite side of things, you're getting a lot of op- opposing voices. So let me channel some of that so we can have some conversation about what people are disagreeing with you on, on UBI. So I think, uh, you know, a collective argument I think that, that I've seen or read is that a system like this is essentially giving people money for doing nothing. Mm. How, how do you respond to that when people bring that up? Yeah, so that actually ties back to what I, I already um, covered a bit ago, is just saying that it's what we're doing right now is paying people money to do nothing because that's the criteria you have to meet, is that you have to be doing nothing in order to get the income. And as soon as you're doing something, you lose the benefit. So that is paying people to do nothing. It's an incentivizing of that because that makes more sense. If people are rational. Why would you accept a job if you're worse off or barely better off? So with a basic income, that's not paying people to do nothing. It's paying people to do anything. It's saying that here's a floor, and no matter what you do, you can do that. 
You know, you, there's a far more incentive. Right now, there's a disincentive to work, and basic income removes that disincentive. Hmm. So there's basically the idea that we're paying people to do nothing with basic income is a misunderstanding of what basic income is and also how the existing welfare system works. Right. I mean, the assumption you're saying is this is this is an amount of money for people to be at or slightly above the poverty line. So if you want any sort of increased quality of life, you're going to probably want to work a little harder, right? Right. I mean, just imagine uh, it, how, how many people only want to spend money on food and housing every month and do absolutely nothing. You know, nobody, our entire U.S. culture, it's a 70% consumer economy. Everybody wants to spend money on something else, you know, other than the basics. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that for decades, uh, our incomes have been completely stagnant and the prices of the basic stuff has gone up and up and up. So we're actually less and less able to engage as consumers in this economy. And that actually, it's bad for the economy. That doesn't make any sense either. What, what would you say to, instead of giving this money uh, as, as cash to folks, and instead just maybe giving it uh, for education and job training for people so they so we know that the investment is going to lead to better jobs and and overall help the economy. What do you think of that concept? Yeah, so it, it's really interesting if you if we start like looking at the the evidence to inform this kind of question is that uh, you know there's a really interesting study that looked at uh, the earned income tax credit, which is again something I would re- I would replace as part of introducing basic income uh, re- with the earned income tax credit versus um, uh, pre K. And they said, okay, so which has the the more of an effect on on education? And just, I guess, I should cover what EITC is as well. Is that the EITC functions as kind of like a negative income tax, where you get nothing though if you're earning nothing, and then it ramps up as you do more, as you earn more income, and then it plateaus. And then it starts to fall off as you earn more income. So it's it's like a wage subsidy, and um, it also scales by household size. So, so if you're a single adult with no kids, you're actually you get hardly any EITC help. If you have as soon as you have a kid or two kids, then or if you're a part of a household, then that's you know much more assistance. Um, but okay, so what they looked at is is how far does a dollar of EITC go versus, say, a dollar in pre-K? And they found there was a, a larger effect just giving people money as far as, like, the you know the outcome of the kids' educations. Hmm. So it, that's a really interesting finding that that all you, all you really have to do to, to see better educational results is to make sure that parents have more money because, of course, parents use money to help their kids. And also, if you're, you know, in a, in a less stressful environment, then that's better for the kid as well. You know, you're, if, you're, if you're not starving uh, every day, you know, if you're going to school on an empty stomach uh, and all you're thinking about is this and, you know, the home life is stressful, you're going to do worse in school. And it doesn't matter how much you put into education because there's just so much more going on than that. So it's like kind of a it's like Maslow's hierarchy of basic needs, where you just kind of make sure people's basics are covered, and then all this other stuff can work a whole lot more. You know, like it's uh, it's like the difference between like a firefighting mentality and versus the prevention of of fires. You know, if you right now 
our entire society is kind of built around putting out fires. So that means like you're, you know, people are getting cancer who wouldn't get cancer and, and heart disease and, and diabetes and people are going to prison and they're doing crimes and there's violence and, you know, again, drug usage. And there's all these things that people are doing because they don't have their basics covered. As soon as you have those basics covered, then, you know, there's so much more you could do beyond that. Like as, the, you know, I've heard the saying that that first comes bread, uh, then morality. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to you got to get your covered, you get your basics first and then there's so much more as possible. So if you if you're if all we do is put money into education and healthcare and all these other things, then you know it's not that those things are bad, but we're not getting to the root and we're also wasting all this money that we wouldn't spend otherwise. Hmm. Well, it it sounds like you're obviously extremely uh, motivated by this this topic as well as the the need to do this in the U.S. Is there a case study of this happening on other parts of the world where you've seen this and, and the results have been favorable. Yeah. So uh, again, it was it was looking into the evidence that that really got me um, convinced and, and fascinated and and pushing for this idea, something that we need immediately. This was if we looked at. Um, that one of the things I was surprised to learn when I first started looking into this was that we did actually do some experiments in the 70s um, with when we almost passed it under Nixon. So that's something, a part of history that a lot of people don't know, that Nixon proposed a guaranteed income in the form of um, a negative income tax that was eventually called the Family Security System and then officially called the Family Assistance Plan. And as part of this, we actually experimented with this in um, in cities like Seattle and Denver and New Jersey and Garandiana, rural North Carolina. We looked at, um, you know, we were really concerned about work disincentive effects. And so we wanted to see what happens in rural areas, what happens in metro areas, what happens if the amount is 100% of the poverty line or 150% of the poverty line, what happens if we pull it away at a rate of 50% versus a rate of, you know, 75% or whatever. So we did a whole lot of these uh, experimental conditions to see what would happen. And in Canada, they also did the same thing. They called the the Mincom experiment, and they did this. Uh, they did a whole saturation site as part of this as well in the town of Dauphin, Manitoba. And this was an entire town that was provided this um, negative income tax form of basic income guarantees, so that if you weren't working. If you weren't earning any income, then you got the full amount, and then as you earned income, that amount was slowly reduced. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that effectively eliminated poverty. So what were the effects of that in both there and the U.S.? Well, in Canada, hospitalization rates decreased 8.5%. Uh, as far as these work reduction uh, concerns went, they found that that there was really no effect on primary earners, and the greatest effect was on students and new mothers. So new mothers treated this as a kind of paid uh, maternity leave, and they found that students used this to exit the workforce because they were essentially working because they had no other choice, but they wanted to be in school, and they used that to go to school. So fascinatingly, you actually saw that uh, the, the school attendance rate went above 100% because you had dropouts who had dropped out of school 
than dropping out of labor force to go back to school. And so you saw this big effect again on, on education. In the U.S., uh, again, they saw these small work incentive effects where there wasn't any really – there wasn't a reduction in labor hours as far as people taking the money and going, ooh, I, I don't need as much money now, so I'll work less. What happened was that primary earners uh, actually spent more time looking for jobs between jobs. So the result of that was a result in – was a, re- a reduction in work hours looking at the entire year, but the other result of this was that they were looking ostensibly for jobs that better fit them. And I think that's what we – want is that we want people to find jobs that they want to be in versus finding the first job that they can because they have no other choice and are desperate and need the money. Because another effect of that is actually a a pressure, a downward pressure on wages. Mm. And that is also a a big effect of of unconditional basic income that that, uh, a lot of people who don't like the idea aren't necessarily recognizing, is that if you can say no to the labor market, which is what so many people are afraid of. But if you can say no to it and actually have the power to do that, that's bargaining power. It's the same as like you see with unions and striking. That's where that power comes from, is that the refusal to work. So if people can actually exist outside the labor market and have their basics covered, then the the incentivizing of people to do work goes to the employer. The employer has to offer enough wages and salary or enough benefits, or attractive hours, or working additions in order to get people to take those jobs voluntarily. In which case, that also means you necessarily don't need a minimum wage anymore. So that's also an alternative way of looking about this. Instead of a market distortionary minimum wage saying that you have to pay this much money, then you actually provide that flexibility and say, hey, people can work for what they want to work for, and but because people can say no, you better be willing to pay enough to attract them. Yeah. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month 
each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. And use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. So why do you why do you think the experiments didn't continue like after after the 1970s uh, experiment with Nixon and then the the ones in Canada? What what do you think the reason was that it didn't continue? Well, in the U.S., the reasons that the, we didn't continue it was that in 1970 uh, we you know Nixon proposed in 69 and it actually passed the House in 70 and then it didn't make it. And it was actually introduced again and then didn't make it through the Senate. So if it had made it through the Senate, it would have been signed, but it didn't. The reason it didn't make it through the Senate was that on the left, uh, Democrats felt that it wasn't high enough. And so they voted, they didn't want to support it. And on the right, there was kind of a panic about how uh, there was a perceived uh, increase in divorce rates. In the in the initial pilot findings, which ended up actually being false uh, once everything was said and done, but because of these preliminary findings, they panicked over it and said, "Oh my gosh, you know, if we give women the ability to leave relationships they don't want to be in, then that will be like destroy the nuclear family." You know, so there's panic over that, and also that seems kind of quaint nowadays that. That back then we were so worried about women being too independent, and I just don't see that happening now. But anyways, that was what happened, and so because of that, you know, the the law wasn't going in, that it didn't pass. Then you know, the end of the experiments just meant, well, you know, it's not going to happen. So all that, you know, it's done. Hmm. In Canada, it was um, it was just kind of a shifting of political winds, where the party in power that that started it was, you know. Uh, they fell out of favor and a new party came in and they just, you know, shuttered this stuff up and put all the, what they had found in boxes and actually literally just like locked them away. And they actually weren't rediscovered for quite a while and for decades even until a professor from Canada named Evelyn Frege dug them up and started looking into this. So, you know, that's kind of the, the history of this, uh, you know, back in the day, but there are actually even newer experiments that have happened too. Yeah, let's as talk about this, those. Yeah, I think yeah. That, I think that would be interesting for everybody. So it, this uh, we it's a one of the first major experiments uh, of the newer generation was in uh, Namibia, and this was uh, of about a thousand people, and this was a full universal basic income. So unlike these previous experiments I've been talking about, which is a negative income tax variant. The universal basic income is that everybody, rich or poor, gets the exact same amount, and that's that. And you can you know earn on top of it. And so, in Namibia, there was just some really fascinating findings where the um, you know crime rate was reduced forty two percent. Poaching, this illegal hunting, was reduced ninety five percent. 
and self-employment, you know, entrepreneurship jumped 301%. So these are just massive numbers, you know, big, big changes. And, um, you know, just a, a quick story as an example of, of why, uh, to explain why these changes are so big is that one of the, the best uh, successes, these w- examples, was a, a woman who, with their very first payment, went out to, and used it to buy you know, the ingredients for baking you know, flour and yeast, and, and she put together a makeshift oven, and she started baking goods. And those were really popular with the village, and they, too, of course, had money through the basic income to purchase her goods. And it was a very popular business, and she ended up earning far more on top of her basic income because of this. So if you just even just compare that to, let's say, if if someone had come in and given this one woman a loan, so she was able to get the exact same ingredients and do the exact same business, and would she have succeeded? Well, no, <laughs> because she needs customers. And if you have, if you're in a market without anyone with money to purchase your goods, you're not going to succeed. So there was a huge difference because everybody had money. Hmm. And so that's uh, it, that was a very positive like first UBI experiment. And this was followed up also in, in India uh, later, which is an even larger experiment, with around 6,000 um, people in India and across different villages. And they even had control villages as well to compare. And again, you saw similar effects. You saw that, that people in the recipient villages um, were three times as likely to start their own business than those in the control villages. Uh, you know, you saw this, uh, a large um, increase in equity effects where, where you know, especially the, those like, um, you know, women and the elderly and disabled, uh, it was a much bigger deal for them than, you know, the, the rest of the villages. Um, it, this was, you know, it was, a, it was a huge success, and I recommend everybody, you know, look into uh, the actual results of both Namibia and, and India. And so those were the ones that were done. And now we're into this newer um, uh, uh, group of, of, of pilot projects and experiments where, you know, Finland just started up recently this year, They're, and this is a two-year uh, experiment. Is that countrywide? And, this is not countrywide. Uh, this is um, an experiment uh, on the unemployed. Hmm. And so it's not a universal basic income, but it is a basic income in that for that person who receives it, it's a basic income. They don't lose it with work. They keep it whether they're working or not working. But they're only giving it to those who are currently unemployed and comparing it to a control group of those who are unemployed who are not receiving because they want to see the difference, the difference between welfare and basic income. Is there, again, this this effect that we're talking about? Like, uh, What is the effect if people are able to keep their income with work? Do they still not work or do they start accepting pay jobs? Do they start accepting part-time work and temporary work that they wouldn't otherwise? And even other effects like lower stress. And in fact, we are seeing like these kind of preliminary anecdotes as well as far as lower stress, and it seems to be working. But that's a, it's a, it's not a full universal base game experiment, but it is testing like the concepts behind it, especially this removal of the work disincentive that welfare has. Does your interest in the, I guess, the correlation of all this new automated technology coming into the world and probably the removal of some 
you know, uh, lower skilled positions, uh, does that combine with this interest in universal basic income? Because essentially there's probably going to be a lot of people in the near future that are going to be out of work or needing that job training to get a middle-class job. Is that, is that part of your, your thought process with this? Oh, sure. It's, it's, again, that's the, my origins are coming at this, the technology angle. And, um, it really the thing that, that gets me is that I find it just kind of odd uh, looking at this from like, say, a, a Martian perspective, looking mm-hmm. at this from like a, you know, I'm not an earthling and this is an alien perspective and looking down on earth, you have a bunch of people who are panicking because they've invented so many machines that the machines are actually able to do the work that they don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. And so like the entire reality. point, yeah, they, we made this technology to reduce the amount of work that, that we had to do, the reduced toil. Uh, you know, there's so much work that we want to do, but that's different than toil. And yet here we are panicking over all this loss of, of employment that can entirely be done by by technology. And in fact, it's even more messed up that we are actually we're already competing against machines and we're actually bidding down our own labor. So there is an artificial low price for human labor right now versus machines. And even though machines are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, we've actually, you know, made our labor cheap enough so that you know it's it's not being replaced i want machines to replace as much human labor as possible if a machine can do a job that someone doesn't want to do and especially if it can do it at a at a you know more efficient price and uh better quality then it absolutely should be doing that but because we've created a system where we need money in order to purchase you know what we need to live and the only way to really get money is through jobs, then we're actually afraid of losing jobs. So that's why I feel that there's like a Gordian knot of our own creation that we absolutely have to sever work from income. We have to make sure that people get income no matter what so that then we're not afraid of automation. You know, we should welcome it. We should – human labor should be more expensive than machine labor, like let's especially for jobs we don't want to do. And this that's just a great example is that if we look at supply and demand, it seems so odd that the jobs that nobody wants to do are the jobs that don't pay anything. <laughs> <laughs> like, as far as supply and demand goes, the jobs that nobody wants to do should have a very small supply of people, and therefore you should actually have to pay a lot in order for people to get them. And I think that's really this powerful effect of the ability to say no that basic income provides. I think that would rectify this kind of messed up market situation where these jobs that don't people don't want to do actually pay a lot if a machine can't do them. And if a machine can do them and if the price you know falls below that, then it makes more sense. You know, if a if a human being will not do a job unless they get say twenty dollars an hour and the technology that can replace them is $15 an hour, then boom, that makes far more sense to do the machine. But if the human will work for $7 an hour, then there's no reason to invest in that $15 an hour you know, machine. So just think of all, the, the tech, all these jobs out there that already could be automated that 
we have not automated. And even think of all the jobs that shouldn't even exist. And so this is like looking at David Graeber's bull jobs argument. Like how many jobs are out there that we're essentially doing purely just to get the income from it? You know, like it, it, this looks at, um, you know, how many people are in jobs right now that they feel actually need to exist? Well, only one third of the U.S. is actually engaged by the work that they're doing. Two thirds <laughs> of the U.S. are are actively disengaged by their work. You know, they don't care or they hate it. <laughs> so it, what is that? Uh, let's actually make the conditions where machines do a whole lot of work that we don't want to do. The work that's available and people want to do are actually done by people. And also, let's not just assume that 40 hours a week was handed down by gods on granite stone. <laughs> like, if, it, if there's less paid work available for everybody to do, well, let's reduce that. Let's say, hey, well, the normal then is, say, 20 hours a week or whatever. Like, people should be able to work less if there's less work. And you know we should be able to share the 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 fruits of our technology in a more in a more sane, more equitable way. Yeah, I think we're going to see this this with this exponential growth in technology, automated vehicles, automated manufacturing. We're probably going to hear a lot more about this topic uh, over the next ten to twenty years. I I wanted to ask you a little bit because we were talking about the the governmental involvement. Uh, with a system like this, it probably needs some support from somebody. At least, if we're talking about the U.S., is there mm-hmm. any is there anybody in government right now that is, you know, uh, pro UBI or, or, or thinking about this uh, that 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 you know about? Yeah. So actually, funny funny you asked that question. Even is a, a kind of big news in the basic income world is even this that yesterday that Keith Ellison tweeted that he supports basic income and he you know asked people to to give their own opinions um, you know as if they like it or don't like it. So Keith Ellison is the um, is it the deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee. He's a fairly well known uh, politician. Um, on the left. And uh, that's kind of a bigger win. Like we've, like Bernie Sanders has been consistently asked about basic income, but, and he, he will give answers where he's like, yeah, it's, I I believe that, you know, it it achieves the goals that I think we need to do. But you can tell that he feels that it's possibly a bit uh, too much uh, for the electorate to consider. So he's like focused on more like, you know, universal health care and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, you can tell that he, he likes it. He's just not getting behind it until, let's say, what they call the Overton window is sufficiently there, um, which is the Overton window. For anyone who isn't, hasn't heard that before, it's like the the topics that is a, that's um, essentially considered that's uh, you know up for sane discussion. You're not crazy for talking about this thing. And so – I believe the Overton window has been opening on basic income now for 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 years, and I think we're just about there to the point where you're going to see those like Bernie Sanders, because here you go, you know, Keith Ellison is already actually actively endorsing it, and uh, you know some others um, have been looking at this as well. Where in uh, Hawaii is a good example where the the state uh, the state Congress of Hawaii recently passed a bill recognizing uh, the economic security of all residents uh, of Hawaii, and that as part of this, that uh, a basic income would be one way of going about it, and that they should be looking into 
either implementing it or experimenting with it. And this could be so, passed on the state level? Yeah, and that, that, that was passed. Hmm, okay. So uh, Hawaii is the first state in the U.S. to seriously consider basic income. So you know we may see an experiment that pops up there sometime soon, or they may implement you know some version of it just if they want to at some point like maybe they'll decide that you know to add a value-added tax uh in hawaii so that you know you fund a a dividend to all you know residents of hawaii using this in which case you'd actually get a lot of um tourists actually spending into the basic income pool but the recipients would be those who are living in in hawaii Hmm. you know you could do What's up? I was going to say, just one more reason to move to Hawaii, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so, yeah, so Alaska also is the closest thing in the world to already having a basic income. You know, they have the annual Alaska dividend is provided once a year instead of, you know, once a month. It's not that regular, but it is provided universally, rich and poor, to all residents of Alaska. Hmm. And uh, this has been a very successful program. They've been doing it since 1982. Everyone has been receiving a dividend. And it's also one of the least unequal and lowest amounts of poverty of any state in the country. It's, uh, you know, it's been very successful. What kind of dividend and, do they receive? I mean, I, I mean, is it a percentage of their income? How does that work? The way they've gone about it is they've put, uh, say, about 25% of the oil revenue into what's called the Alaska Permanent Fund. The Alaska Permanent Fund has been growing and growing and growing because of that, and then that's invested in, say, markets and just like you invest anything. And then the return on that is this dividend that they divide amongst all residents. So right now, the Alaska Permanent Fund is over $50 billion in size. And then the you know the dividends from that divided, and on average, it's been about one thousand dollars a year. Um, again, since nineteen eighty two, it has been as high as uh, thirty six hundred dollars in one year, and that was actually under Sarah Palin of all people, where she actually added a bonus uh, on top of the the dividend payout at the time, and this is per per person, so that even every kid gets it, and every kid gets the exact same amount as well. So just as a small detail, in the, in the U.S., uh, I, would do, I would do it so that uh, a kid, anyone under 18 gets a partial, you know, a smaller basic income because they don't need as much. Um, you know, so like in the U.S., it would be $1,000 for an adult and, say, $400 per month um, for kids. But in Alaska, the way the dividend works is that everybody, every kid gets the exact same amount. So if you get $3,000 per in the year and you have a household – I can't remember what Sarah Palin's household size is, but let's say it's it's 10 <laughs> So if a household side of, of 10, like, like Sarah Palin or whatever, then you're looking at $30,000 for the year. That's a lot of money yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, in Alaska. And so it, it adds up. If you're going to go the 10-kid route, it, absolutely. <laughs> right. If you're going to go the 10-kid route, Alaska, <laughs> that, that adds up. Um, so, yeah, so uh, Alaska is an example of a state that essentially already has a version of it. Uh, Hawaii is seriously... Um, looking into it, and that's also something that I expect. Um, you know, as we say, states are the laboratories of democracy. I expect states to follow the kind of the same kind of trend as uh, gay marriage and uh, marijuana legalization has gone, 
where you've got the state saying this is important to us and we're going to pass this now. So you're even looking at, um, you know, um, like California could do a a uh, you know carbon tax and dividend scheme so that you you put a tax on carbon and provide everyone that revenue instead of going to the government it would go to everybody equally as a dividend and um, that's actually there's a bill for that actually in DC um, that could happen so DC could be the first one to have a carbon tax and dividend and I think other states could follow suit you could see this in in Colorado um, you know Washington State they actually could have done this or a version of it uh, already but but didn't. Um, but there's so many ways of going about a basic income too. So you could do, you know, a land value tax and dividend. You could do this, like the value added tax and dividend. It's really just a way of figuring out how to create a uh, new revenue in a state that's then distributed to all residents universally and equally. So it may not be a, you know, an, an amount sufficient to end poverty, uh, but it's amount that reduces poverty and reduces inequality and actually makes a huge difference in people's lives. And that's what I expect to see at a state level, or it's kind of like partial basic incomes. Well, it's a topic that we are probably going to be hearing about quite a bit over the next, like you said, it's, it's um, you know, the window's been open and you're, you're holding it open and letting the breeze come through. So it's probably, <laughs> gonna, it's probably going to be a lot of uh, conversation about this in the next five to 10 years. And uh, we all expect to see you at the forefront of, uh, you know, trying to uh, keep the UBI debate going. So I really appreciate you taking some time with us today, Scott. Um, if people want to learn more about this topic and follow you, where, where should they go? Yeah, so you can you can follow me uh, on Twitter. Uh, my handle's at Scott Santons. Uh, I've got a blog, scottsantons.com. And I also just recommend following um, the news on basicincome.org. That's uh, you know international news from all over the world to stay up on what the entire global conversation is. And um, also you know reddit.com slash r slash basicincome, which is the subreddit that I moderate there. And this is like a, you know, a huge archive of uh, that's daily updated as far as articles, news pieces, research papers, you know, uh, blog posts, and, and even stuff that's uh, against the idea. There's a if you really want to research why people are against it, that's a great place for it too. But um, yeah, there's a lot out there, and um, you know, just you know, keep that conversation going, research the idea. And I also just recommend that people just ask themselves, uh, what would you do with a basic income? Or even, what are you not doing right now because you don't have a basic income? You know, just think about what's possible uh, if you no longer have to worry about covering your absolute basic needs on a month-to-month basis. You know, what would that free you to do? I think there's a lot of creative answers out there, and I look forward to hearing them and actually seeing them implemented once we finally have it. That's a great question to throw at everybody and a great way to, to end the conversation. Thank you so much, Scott. I will be sure to put all those links that you mentioned in the show notes for people to learn more about the topic and keep the conversation going. Yeah, thanks, Andy, and thank you for uh, covering the topic and actually helping grow the conversation. Well, that was definitely an eye-opener. Uh, when I initially heard of universal basic income, I thought, isn't welfare like the same thing or wouldn't a program like this disincentivize people to work altogether? 
And I guess what I think I learned today is that we're not talking about a whole bunch of money here, just enough for people to meet their basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, water, all the basics. According to these experiments and the other case studies that I've I've, I've started to read into, when people have their basic needs met, crime decreases, healthcare issues decrease, and entrepreneurship actually increases. So the question we could all ask ourselves would be, what would you do with an extra 1000 bucks per month? Would you develop a business like the woman in Namibia? Or would you just spend more and increase your quality of life? Or would you figure out a way to not work at all? Who, who knows? You know, I, I agree that the money has to come from somewhere, from us, from our pocketbooks, our taxes. I get it. But if the welfare programs we have now are disincentivizing people to get higher paying jobs and join the labor force or not join the labor force for that matter, perhaps it's time to look at another option. I did some research into the case against universal basic income as well. That side of the debate actually makes sense to me too. <laughs> makes sense to me too. Essentially, the, the argument contests that if we create a perpetual state of government support then it will, quote-unquote, render self-reliance moot. I get that. It makes sense. Either way, I'm not positive I'm for basic income or against it, but at least today I've educated myself further. I hope this discussion and the interview with Scott helped you to become further educated as well. After all, it's your country and your money. To keep the discussion and the debate cranking, I've included all of the links and resources in the show notes at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 44. I've even included a couple popular articles on the case against universal basic income so we can keep that discussion balanced. At that same link in the comments section, let me know your thoughts on universal basic income. Do you think it would help our country? Do you think it's a dumpster fire of an idea? I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts as I'm actually still forming my own opinion on the topic. As a quick reminder, if you're looking to get your blog started, check out Bluehost for that 50% off deal at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Bluehost. And when you get that blog started, send me an email at andy at marriagekidsandmoney.com. I want to be your first reader. (laughs) In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Martin Luther King Jr., The function of education is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically. Intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. Thanks for learning and growing with me today, everyone. Carpe diem!